Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches us from our Behold Emmanuel series. So have you, have you ever royally blown it? Have you ever just royally messed it up? I mean, I was thinking about that as for this introduction to this message, but I mean like really blown it. I've thought about all the different ways in which I've really blown it. I've really messed it up, really messed things up. And it could be decisions that I've made on a job. Uh, it could be something that I've cooked. <laughs> I've really blown and messed it up. Um, so many different ways in which we can royally blow it and mess it up, mess up a situation. We can make sinful decisions that will impact our lives. But what's interesting and sobering, I, I would say is a better word, what's sobering about the situations that we mess up or the decisions that we make that royally mess things up or we've blown it, is that those decisions have ramifications far beyond personal impact, don't they? When we, and in particular, when you think about sin, you think about the times in which we sin, we don't live on an island. Our sin impacts not just ourselves, but those around us. And there's a ripple effect that it impacts our marriages and our families and our kids, our co-workers. And as Christians, as with the testimony of Christ on our lips, whenever we live incongruent with our testimony, it has a ripple effect, doesn't it? And this really is what the reality of our world is like. We are living in the reality of sin's consequence of sin's consequence, of, of the curse of sin, but then of individual sins, of people living in lifestyles of sin, of, of sinful decisions and choices that impact families and, and, and kids and generations. And it's this ripple effect. It's this ripple effect. And this is the story of humanity from the beginning. You see it in Genesis. Humanity taking, the first man and woman, taking their life into their own hands, doing things their own way, saying, God, I, I, I know this is what you said. I know this is the command that you gave us, but we're going to do it our way. We're going to rebel against your way. We'll do it our way. And this is where we are. This is our reality. We don't know any other reality other than living under the effects of the curse of sin, under the effects of the consequences of sin, right? Well, what did God do about it? What has he done about it? What is his response? What was his response of the consequences that have traveled down from, from Adam and Eve, from person to person, and generation to generation, and generation to generation. What has been done? What did God do? How did He respond? What is God's answer to the brokenness caused by sin? What was His answer, but what is His answer? Yes, it's Jesus. Jesus is His answer. You know, there, there, are, there are many things that could be said about God. If you talk to many different people, they'll give you different answers. Some would say, well, God is indifferent. God is distant, God is passive, God is angry, but none of that can really be said truthfully of God because of this one doctrine that we're going to look at this morning, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of God becoming man. And our text this morning is Matthew 1. We're going to continue in Matthew 1. We're going to look at verses 21 through 25. I want to thank Pastor Dom, who's home with the sick family this morning. Thank him for preaching last week. Uh, he did a phenomenal job looking at Matthew 1, 18 through 20. Today we're going to look at 21 through 25. So if you would open your Bibles, let's look at Matthew 1, starting in verse 25. It says, She, 
will bear a son. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The incarnation. This is the central point of this text, the incarnation. The fact that Jesus, that God became man, eternal God became man. The incarnation, I would say, is the centerpiece of Christianity. It's the centerpiece of Christianity that this one doctrine sets Christianity apart from every other religion. The incarnation, God putting on flesh. No incarnation, there's no cross. No cross, there's no death. No death, there's no resurrection. No resurrection, there's no justification. The incarnation, God becoming man, is the centerpiece of Christianity. It's really the, one of the overlooked doctrines of Christianity that we really only think about one time per year. But really, it is what, what makes Christianity what it is, that God became man. Now, one commentator puts it like this. Follow along here. He says this, Without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a very good story. And most sadly, it means nothing. Be nice to one another is not a message that can give life meaning. Assure me of love beyond brokenness and break open the dark doors of death with the key of hope. The incarnation. So what we're going to look at here from this text in Matthew 1, we're going to get two thoughts today about the incarnation that, that, that are highlighted in this text. So here's what we'll see. Here, here's kind of the overarching thought from this text. It's it's it's. It's this, the eternal God of creation wrapped himself in flesh and made the impossible possible. The eternal God of creation wrapped himself in flesh and made the impossible possible. So two profound realities that will illustrate this point from our text about the history-shaping impact of God becoming man. So let's first look at this. Let's first look at the eternal God who came down. That'll be in your notes there. The eternal God who came down. Look look back to the text, Matthew 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us, the eternal God who came down. God, the God who came down. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. This was a prophecy about God becoming man, Emmanuel, God with us. It was a prophecy. 700 years before the birth of Christ, there was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, that prophesies, and, and here's Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Think about that for a moment. There's some context around this prophecy here, but think about that. 700 years before the birth of Christ, when we're sitting now on the other side of not just the birth, but the death and the resurrection of Christ, when you're sitting on the other side of it, who else could this prophecy have been about but Jesus? Right? 700 years before his birth in a manger, God spoke through a prophet named Isaiah and declared that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
So, so what was this prophecy? What was the context around this prophecy? So when this prophecy was given in Isaiah chapter 7, the king of Israel was King Ahaz. The king Ahaz. And king, king Ahaz was an evil king, an evil king of God's people. He offered uh, sacrifices, set up altars to Molech. And in fact, he, he worshiped Molech to the point that he sacrificed his son on an altar towards Molech. And he, he led the, the nation into wickedness and idolatry. He was an evil king. And as a result of his evil leadership and his wickedness and his idolatry, he led God's people into a place of vulnerability. And I just want to say a little side note here. When, when people lead, when leaders lead in unrighteousness, people are left vulnerable. They're left vulnerable. When people lead unrighteously, when, God, when leaders lead unrighteously, people are left vulnerable. And this is what is happening with King Ahaz. You can see it with other evil kings of the nation of Israel. Whenever they would lead in unrighteousness and lead towards idolatry, God's people become vulnerable because like, like leader become, like people become like leader and they follow their, their leader into idolatry and they're vulnerable to God's judgment. They're vulnerable to attack from other nations. And so Ahaz finds himself under threat for his life. And, they, and, 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 and his kingdom is under threat. And so he partners with an, another evil king, the king of the Assyrians. And so he's going to have to try to come up with a plan for the protection of God's people because other nations are trying to attack God's people. And so, so the, the prophet speaks in the middle of this scene, and the prophet Isaiah speaks for the Lord, and this is God's response this is God's response to the evil king who is trying to partner with a, another evil king for the protection of God's people. And, and this is the context. And basically the Lord says this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and he shall call his name Emmanuel. And what was God saying through the, his prophet to the evil king who had left God's people vulnerable? What was he saying? He was saying, you won't take care of my people, so I will. You won't protect them, so I will. He, he was making the declaration, I will come down. A virgin shall conceive. And this will be a sign that, to you that a virgin shall conceive and a son will be born and he will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. You as a leader won't take care of my people. I will do it myself. I will come down. God will come himself. This is the centerpiece of Christianity that God says, I will come and handle business. I will come and deal with the curse of sin. I will come down. God will come. God will come down to man. God will come to his people. Emmanuel. Consider the weight of that. Emmanuel. God. Come down. The eternal God. Consider the weight of what happened when the fulfillment of that prophecy that took place over 700 years ago, consider the weight of what actually took place whenever God put on flesh and was born through a virgin, was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, in a feeding trough in a manger. Consider the weight of what that means when God prophesied through his prophet Isaiah 700 years before that birth, he pointed to the reality that God was going to initiate something that had never happened before, where God eternal would put on flesh. You know, the, the ancient temple of Israel, the tabernacle in the wilderness, served as the dwelling place of God's presence. And so when the priests would go and offer the sacrifices, there was a holy of holies, and the God's presence dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant 
And this is where God's presence dwelt, whether it was in the temple or it was in the tabernacle in the wilderness. God's presence dwelt in a one certain location, but it wasn't physical. It was his glory, his Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the temple. The Shekinah glory of God dwelt in the, in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. Now, listen, think of the weight of this. Now the Shekinah glory of God will have flesh and bones. God would come down. The perfect glory of God will dwell in human skin. And so in essence, the incarnation of Jesus is the glory of God in flesh. In fact, when you think about the temple and the tent of meeting, if the priest would go and offer sacrifice, would go into the Holy of Holies, to the altar, and there was sin in their life, they would not make it out alive. The glory of God, that, that holiness, that glory, that perfection, that sovereignty, that power dwelt in human flesh, became flesh. The glory of God. John 1, right, shows us this, shows us this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory put on flesh. Perfection put on flesh. God came down. This Word that became flesh, what did we see earlier in John? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is the eternal God that has come down. Glory, perfection, perfect glory, perfect righteousness has come down. The eternal God has stepped down. He left eternity, entered time and space. The eternal God. Philippians 2, Pastor Manny read it earlier. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The eternal God has come down. Majesty, power, perfect omniscience, sovereignty, perfect sovereignty. He's come down to dwell. Where has he come down to dwell? Where did God come down to dwell? Amongst his creation. You feel the weight of that? Think about, think about that. God in flesh. Royalty among peasants. Royalty among peasants. You know, I, I did go to Europe, as you heard earlier, with my, my Napoleon socks, but before we went to Paris, we went to London. We went to London, and we went to go, if you go to London, there's lots of things you want to go see when you're in London, but one of them is you want to go to Buckingham Palace, right? And so our tour guide said, hey, you got to see the changing of the guards at Buckingham Palace. So our group of 40-plus people, along with thousands of other people, are coming around Buckingham Palace to witness the changing of the guard. And you know, when you're there looking at the soldiers that are all dressed perfectly in their little fluffy hats and their, you know, uh, the ones that stare and don't, don't move and uh, just all of the, all the ceremony, all of it, what you think of, you think of proper, you think of royalty, you think of protocol, you think of, of etiquette. And, and I thought about our group of Cajuns from Louisiana coming and invading royalty. Right? I thought, oh man, these are some cool young people over here coming over into London, into Buckingham Palace. Hey, let's go knock on the door and say, hey, we want to see the king. You know, we would do that, wouldn't we? We want to have tea and biscuits, tea and beignets, coffee and beignets. We want to introduce them to something, right? 
We want to have a visit. We want to climb our way, right? We're down here, but we want to get up there. We're down here. We want to get up there. We want to climb our way up. You know, and in, in some sense, this is a picture of what humanity has been trying to do forever. It's peasants trying to climb up to royalty. It's imperfection trying to climb up to perfection. It's sin trying to do what their sin to get up. But this is the point of the incarnation. God has come down. Every form of religion, apart from Christianity, is a man-centered religion of trying to knock on the door of the of Buckingham Palace to try to get in, to try to get up, to try to elevate, to try to, to find a, a higher state of spirituality. doesn't matter what it is. Uh, it's all man-centered. New Age self-help. Eastern mysticism, emptying of the mind to, to be filled with something greater. It could be legalistic, adopting of ceremonial or, or dietary laws from the Old Testament. Islam, cults, salvation through the sacraments. All of it, all of it, all of it apart from the once for all sacrifice for, of Christ for our justification. All of it is man-centered. All of it is trying to get up. All of it's trying to climb the ladder. Christianity is completely opposite. It's not even close. At the heart of Christianity is the reality of the eternal God who came down to us. He stooped down to us. He reached down to us. He pursued us. Royalty stooping down to brokenness. Everything else that we try to do, all of it, is man trying to climb up. It's all works. It's all self-effort to deal with the deep-seated heart issue. But the incarnation, the eternal God that came down, is royalty stooping to brokenness. So my question for all of us today is, what about you? What about you? Let's think about that. What about you? What form of religion are, are you practicing? Are you, you practicing religion? Or are you practicing a relationship with Christ who came down for you? What about you? Have you believed the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Or are you still living some form of self-help religion? You know, you can live a form of self-help religion in an evangelical church where you see it just like every other false religion where you just, you think that this is something you're doing to climb your way up to God. And if I do enough and I attend church enough, then hopefully the good will outweigh the bad. The scales will be balanced. And when I get to heaven, God would say, hey, you really, you were there every service on Sunday and you dropped some money in the bucket every other week. You did a really good job. Thank you. Right? You could be attending an evangelical church, a gospel church, and be living like every other form of self-help religion. Have you believed in the it is finished message of the cross? No more to be done, nothing more to add? Are you still banging on the door of Buckingham Palace saying, let me in to eat with the king? Or are you throwing yourself on to the mercy and the grace of God through the work of to the person and work of Jesus Christ who has flung the doors open for you to sit at the table of the king, not just as a visitor, but as a son or a daughter, right? Makes all the difference in the world. 
The eternal God came down. This is what separates Christianity apart. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus bridged the gap between perfect righteousness and sinful rebellion because he came down. He bridged the gap. When he, when he stretched out his arms on the cross, he, he created a bridge from sin to forgiveness, from sin to righteousness. From being not a son and not a child to being adopted into the family. He bridged the gap. And since the fall in Genesis 3, man has been trying to work their way up, work their way up. But the message of Christmas, the message of the incarnation, the message of Emmanuel is that glory has come down. Amen? Amen. The eternal God who came down. What did he come down to do? What did he come down to do? Well, that, that, that's our second reality here. The eternal God who came down to, to save. Look back to our text, Matthew 1, 21. The eternal God who came down, but he came down to do something very specific. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. The name Jesus means Joshua, Yeshua. In the original language, it means Jehovah or Yahweh will save. Jehovah or Yahweh will save. How many Joshuas do we have in the room here today? Do we have any Joshuas? Do we have any Joshuas? Your name, Joshua, testifies to the fact that our God saves testifies to the Lord's salvation. But this Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, Jehovah, Yahweh, this Yeshua born to Mary would not only testify to the Lord's salvation, but would in fact be that salvation. He came to be salvation. His very name is declaring what he came to be. He came to save. Eternal God put on flesh for the specific purpose of saving, of salvation. What, what, what would he save the people from? What's he here to save people from? Well, you see in the text, he will save his people from their sins. To be saved means to be delivered, to be rescued, to be delivered from sin. 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 We don't talk about sin a lot, do we, in church? We don't like to talk about sin, but, but sin needs saving from. We need deliverance from. What is the fruit of sin and rebellion against God? What's the fruit of sin and rebellion against God? Death. Absolutely. Look, look, look at Genesis 3. I love preaching in the Cajun church because you ask questions, rhetorical questions. You're going to get answers. Yeah, don't stop answering me. It's good. Genesis 3. To the woman... He said, this is after the fall in Genesis 3, after the rebellion, after Adam and Eve said, we'll do it our way, we'll do it our way, we won't do it your way. Genesis 3, to the woman, this is the curse, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and all the ladies say, multiplied pain, amen? In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. I, I don't like that part. Why you guys want to, why you ladies want to be contrary to us? You want to rule over your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. You guys have something to say about that too, right? And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And you shall eat the, the plants of the field, but 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And listen to this. He drove out the man and the rest, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what's the curse? What, what, what's, what's the result of sin and rebellion against God? It's death. He told Adam and Eve, you came from dust, you shall return to dust. You're going to die physically. That is the result of the curse of sin. And now, how do we know we're all under the curse of sin? Because we all die. But there's another part of the curse of sin. What is the fruit of rebellion and sin against God? Well, death is separation. A physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. But here's the next part, spiritual death, which is of greater significance, is the separation of the soul from God. So now there's not only physical death as a result of the curse of sin, but there is spiritual death. We die spiritually. The prophet Isaiah said in uh, Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Apostle Paul New Testament says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Yes, there's physical death, but we are spiritually dead. Apart from salvation in Christ, we not only will die physically, but we are dead spiritually while we are alive physically. Right? We may be breathing on this earth physically, but we are dead spiritually if we have not been born again. Physical death and brokenness, spiritual death and judgment. God came to save. He could have come to judge because we are all born in sin. We're all under the wrath of God. And when he came, he could have came to judge. And he would have been justified in his judgment. He would have been justified had he left humanity without any hope or any way to receive forgiveness or reconciliation. Because we were all guilty. But God, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it was because of his great love. I love 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To save sinners of whom I am the foremost. It's what God does. He saves if we're not careful, we can forget that God's in the saving and redeeming business. You know, if you're a part of the saved, you can kind of forget that's what he does. Hey, I'm, 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 I'm in. I'm in. You've got some cults that talk about 144,000. I'm, I'm in the 144,000. I'm good, right? Or I'm, I'm a part of the elect. I'm good. I'm a part of the saved. I'm a part of the family. I've been adopted. I'm good. And we can forget that God is in the saving business. He sends Spencer and Marty Robinson to go to other countries around the world to raise up pastors to preach the gospel because he's in the saving business. He's an expert in the field. He's an expert in the field. It's what he does. It's why he came. Christ Jesus came into the world, not to judge, but to save. Eternal God put on flesh for the purpose of saving. He's an expert in the field. That's what he does. Any armchair quarterbacks in the room? 
You know, armchair quarterbacks. You've been watching the Saints lately. I know y'all are all armchair quarterbacking the Saints. Six and seven, we should be what? I don't know. We should have one, at least two or three more. But we're armchair quarterbacks, aren't we? You know, Dennis Allen, it's got to go. It's got to go. I mean, it's not working. Sean Payton left and is doing better. Derek Carr, $100 million man, overrated, overhyped, and overpaid. <laughs> yeah, you're clapping, right? Uh, now we're having church. Now we're having church. We're armchair court. All he has to do, all he's got to do is make that play call. All he got to do is call that timeout. All he got to do is throw the ball here. Why did they make that decision right? So let me get some context for you. There are approximately 1.1 million high school football players each year in our country. 1.1 million, approximately every year, 1.1 million high school football players in our country. And on average, every year, only 251 get drafted into the NFL. So any, and every year, there's around 1 million, 1.1 million high school athletes. And in any and every year of those 1.1 high school athletes, they will have eventually either gone to college or, or gone to pro football. There's only 251 of those that go from high school to the NFL. So that percentage is 0.02% chance of making it to the NFL. So what does that mean? It means that 99.98% of high school players every year will never become an expert in professional football. Right? What does that mean for us who never played high school football? What are those percentages? And yet, that was a dumb call. That's what I was I can't believe they ran that play. Right, because we, we're armchair quarterbacks. Listen, I think sometimes we can be an armchair quarterback when it comes to who we think God can or should save. We sit back and we think, it's just too far gone. There's no way. They've done too much. They've gone too far. Or, or even worse than that, even worse than that, we forget where we came from. And we can even begin to think that someone else doesn't deserve the mercy and the grace of God because of how much they've done. I was thinking about a, a, an artist. His name is uh, Little Nas X. Some of you have never heard of him. He's vulgar. He's got millions of people to follow him on social media. He's dabbling in satanic stuff on music videos. He has his shoes he created called Satan Shoes. He dressed up like Satan. Just all kind of vulgar things with sexuality and blasphemy and all those things. Think about someone like that. The eternal God of creation who put breath in that young man's lungs wrapped himself in flesh for the purpose of him being born again so that he would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And then we, if we're not careful, we become armchair quarterbacks. And on the other end, we can, we can think he's done too much. He's gone too far. Maybe that's someone in your life. Maybe that's someone in your life that, that you've been praying for and waiting for. I talked to somebody before service even about that 
about a family member they've been praying for. Continue to pray. Continue to intercede because the eternal God came down for the purpose of saving sinners. So what does it mean for us? What's our response? It means that as believers, we are reminded of what Christ did in us. Where were we before the light of Christ shined in our heart? Where were we before the light of Christ shined in our heart? How far has the Lord brought us? How far has the Lord brought you? You may not be where you want to be, but you're certainly not who you used to be. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old's passed away. The new has come. You've been redeemed. You've been born again. You've been bought back. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a son and a daughter of righteousness, adopted into to the beloved, adopted into the family. You don't, have to, you don't have to even knock on the door of Buckingham Palace. You can walk right in. Hebrews says it, right, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy. That's not a promise for non-believers. It's only a promise for those who have received the blessings and the benefit of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ for sin. Now the, 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 the veil has been torn in two from top to bottom. God came down, ripped open the veil, and now we have complete access through faith in Christ. We can go right in. This is what he's done for us. Is there anyone too far for God to save? Is his hand shortened that he cannot save? Is there anyone who's done too much that he cannot do in them what he's done in you? The answer is no. No. Why? Why? Because glory put on flesh. The eternal God came down. That's why. It's not because they can, they can do it on their own. Certainly not. None of us could. The only reason there's hope is because God did something about it. Just like King Ahaz, the evil king, leading God's people astray, doing it his way. God said, enough is enough. I'm coming down. I'll take care of it. I am the answer. Amen. June 12, 1987, President Ronald Reagan gave a speech that came to define both his presidency and an era in history. He stood at the Brandenburg Gate, steps away from the wall that divided West Berlin from Soviet-controlled East Berlin. Many of you were adults when that happened. I was six years old when that happened. And Reagan announced to Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, if you seek peace, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down that wall. Tear down that wall. And when I think of walls, like the wall that was dividing society and segregating a society, and I think about walls, what are the words that come to my mind? Separation, isolation, alienation. But there's one word, there's a word that can tear down any wall, and it's the word incarnation. It's the word Emmanuel. It's the words God with us. The wall's been torn down. The access has been opened through the flesh of the Savior who died on Calvary's cross. And so as we conclude here this morning, I want to come back full circle to our first question. First question we asked, have you made a royal mess of things? 
Have you made a royal mess of things? Is there a wall between you and God now? You know, there is truth to the fact that in our, even in our relationship with God, we can make a royal mess of things as Christians, and there's a, there's a wall, there's a, there's a separation, not because God's put the wall, but because our sin has put a wall. But maybe some of you here today, there's, there's been a wall between you and God because you've never been in relationship with Him through faith in Christ. And you've made a royal mess of things, and you're living under the consequence of your sins, and, and there's this sense of, of loneliness and isolation and separation, and there's that sense of the fact that you know that things are not right at the depth of who you are. Well, today, the one word that changes it all, that brings down the wall, is incarnation. It's Emmanuel. It's God with us. So today is a day of decision. If you're here today, today is a day of decision. If you're a believer and you're walking in sin, repent. Don't stay any longer in your sin. How can he who's been dead to sin, Paul says in Romans, live any longer in it? If you're not a believer here today, the answer is you don't try to tear down the wall. The wall's been torn down. The access has been made open. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, that you will be born again. The way has been made open. Simple confession needs to be made. So maybe some of you here today, you need to confess Christ as your Savior. You need to abandon your sin, turn your back on your former life. Embrace Christ not only just as a religious experience, don't embrace Him as a, as a, as a religious experience, embrace Him as Savior and Lord, that He died to absorb the wrath of God that you deserved, the punishment that you deserved. Put your faith in his once-for-all sacrifice on, on the cross and be born again today. Would you, would you bow your heads? The eternal God of creation wrapped himself in flesh and he made the impossible possible. God himself tore down the wall. Jeremiah 32, the prophet says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord the God of all flesh, the God of all creation, is anything too hard for me. So I would say there's nothing too hard for God. He can save those that are dead. Only God can raise the dead. So if you're here today and, and you know today is your time of decision, today is your moment that you feel like, yes, I need to confess Christ as my Lord and Savior. I, I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer. It's going to pray a prayer. And if you connect with that prayer, if that's something that, that you feel in your heart that, that this is you, yes, I want to become a Christian today. I want to confess Christ as my Savior. You can pray along with me. And you can be born again today. It's decision day today. So I'm going to pray a prayer and, and you pray along with me in your heart. Father God, come before you today. And first of all, I thank you that, that you have made a way You've torn down the wall of hostility. You have made a way for man to be reconciled to God, for humanity to be, to be reconciled. And Lord, we make it personal today. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that apart from your work on the cross, there is no hope for me in eternity. Apart from your work, there is no salvation. So I repent of my sins. 
I repent and I turn my back on sin. I acknowledge and I declare that I believe in your death, burial, and resurrection. I confess you as my Lord. Come, be my Savior and my Lord. Lord, I thank you for all of those that may have prayed that prayer, may have connected with that prayer in their heart. I pray, God, that you would continue that work in their life. Pray, God, that you would help them, Lord, as they are on this journey of becoming more like Christ. I thank you for those that that are born again. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us in our relationship with you, that we would never lose the wonder of the incarnation, that we wouldn't just celebrate it once per year, we'd celebrate it every day of the year, the fact that you did what we could not do so that we could become a child of God. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.